the working title for this podcast is The Monk Who Fucked Everything, or A History of Print Capital on the Tibetan Plateau to the Formation of American Spirituality. What do you think? Is that too clickbaity? Have I mixed and matched the idea of tantric sex in medieval Bhutan with the craziness of the American New Age movement? Have I done that well enough? Because that is sort of what I need to get into. I wrote this book called The Enlightenment Trap. Uh, it came out in 2015 under a title that I didn't like, which was A Death on Diamond Mountain, and I re-released it recently because it's probably the most important thing that I've ever written. Ostensibly, the root cause, the thing that started me writing this book, was the death of my student, Emily O'Connor, on a Tibetan Buddhist meditation retreat in India in 2006, where she believed she had attained a final state of enlightenment, not unlike realizing that you were an angel. And she took her own life by jumping off the roof. I found her body at about two in the morning and I had to bring her remains back to America where I, just a 27-year-old guy, with a little bit of experience in India and a little bit of knowledge of Hindi, I had to take her body back home. And I had to reassess my own relationship with spirituality at a very fundamental level. That was the impetus, not only for the, my book, The Enlightenment Trap, but also, interestingly enough, my book, The Red Market, which was about organ trafficking around the world, because for three days I was trying to preserve her body in 100 degree heat while people and institutions were trying to literally take pieces of her body for various reasons. Eventually that led me down to investigating organ trafficking. We'll get to that in a future podcast. But really what I want to talk about is how she got into the mindset that she was enlightened and that enlightenment was the end. And I've done podcasts on this before, but this one's going to be a little different because I want to trace the roots of what she was writing about in her journal back 2,800 years. We are going to go through um, early Buddhist texts, a weird event that happened in medieval Tibet, a conversation between crazy wisdom and tantric sex, and the idea that you can mold reality with the powers of your mind, and a more uh, regimented ideology that institutions are important and those superpowers are a mistake to follow. We're going to talk about the Age of Enlightenment. We're going to talk about the founding of Christianity. We're going to talk about the Civil War, the Rosetta Stone. Man, it's going to get really, really interesting. And I'm going to try to do it in under an hour. You can probably look at the timestamps on this podcast and know if I've reached my goal or not. But here goes. Depending who you talk to, in 500 BC, Siddhartha Gautama achieved a state of enlightenment. He was sitting underneath the Bodhi tree in a place that is now called Bodh Gaya, 
That word translates in Hindi to the place Buddha went, actually. He's sitting there. He touches his finger to the ground and he realizes the ultimate nature of reality and he begins to teach a philosophy that becomes Buddhism, what we know as Buddhism, and he is the first Buddha. Of course, he's responding to problems in Hinduism at the time because everything in history is related to things that went before it, but we're not going to get too much into that except to say that Buddhism was a radical rejection of the caste system which had kept so many people in what amounts to bondage at that time. So the Buddha discovers that he's enlightened and he realizes that the ultimate nature of reality is suffering and that there is a way out of suffering and it is through meditation and purifying your karma and understanding that death is just a stage. It, it is an illusion and there is sort of a real reality out there that he can show you very carefully through meditation and introspection. And this the next thing I'm going to tell you is a little-known story about the origins of the meditation that the Buddha taught. Now, in his prior life, he had studied many ways to get right with death, from severe asceticism to accumulating worldly wealth, and he was proposing a middle way. But he hadn't figured out the right meditation retreat that everyone would want to follow, the ideal way to reach enlightenment. So he tried something first. He told the attendants and the monks that he had gathered that the ideal way to understand the true nature of living and dying is to go to a graveyard, a, a charnel ground. Uh, this is where the corpses of recently dead, mostly prostitutes and beggars, would just rot in the open air. And he said you should sit in those charnel grounds and watch corpses decay, and then realize that your own body decays as well, and it is all essentially the same thing. This, he said, would let you understand the true nature of living and dying. And after giving that lesson, he went off into the mountains to meditate and said he'd be back in about six months. Well, during that time, the monks followed his orders. They went to the charnel grounds, they meditated, and... Well, they couldn't get over their grief. They started feeling that their own bodies were dirty and horrible. And, well, the monks began to kill themselves. They took their lives in droves. And some of them who could not do it asked this other monk, a guy named Migalandika, to go execute them and execute other monks. And over the course of this six-month period, 500 monks were killed in this manner. The Buddha came back and he saw that his uh, following had been decimated and he said, oh my God, this is horrible. I have made a terrible, terrible mistake. He expelled Migalandika from the organization and his order and then he said, well, instead of meditating on corpses, I want all of you to instead focus on the rising and falling of your own breath. It is another type of meditation that you can do, and this is what the true Buddhist meditation is. This story is recorded in the Pali Canon as one of the earliest stories um, written about Buddhism, and it is one that we rarely talk about, although it is 
taught to monks when they're taking their vows. For me, it is an important story because it shows that the Buddha was not truly infallible. He made mistakes. He made a pedagogical error, and he tried to correct the record. And he did correct the record. The meditation he taught has benefited millions and millions of people. And so Buddhism was off to the races. Ashrams and monasteries started to spring up all around India. Buddha eventually died, but he passed on his teachings. They were written down by monks. And Buddhism began to spread. It became a very popular religion in ancient India. What they would do is they would take Buddhist texts, these things called the sutras, which are just sort of the introductory Buddhist texts. They're wonderful. Um, they're engaging. Monks would take these and get on boats and go all the way around the world. They go over mountains and drop off texts at other kingdoms, and they just try to proselytize to the way religions do. A book makes it to Tibet. It ends up in the royal archives of the Tibetan monarchs. And in 1620, Tsongsen Gampo, who is the emperor of Tibet, a military leader, a reformer, a you know, a hero, the King Arthur of Tibet, you could call him. He picks up one of these books that's in the archive and starts spreading knowledge of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, he actually isn't a practitioner of, uh, of Buddhism. He is probably the Bonpo faith, which is, you know, related, uh, more animistic than Tibetan Buddhism. But he founds the first and most important Buddhist temple called the Jokung in Lhasa. Tibetan Buddhism is one of many faiths in Tibet at that time, but it is an important one. And this begins this conversation around print capital that I find so important to how we think about spirituality. You can think of these books, this book that was in the library, just like well, any book in any library, it's, you know, if it finds readers, it grows in popularity. And Songsen Gampo said that Buddhism was a worthy religion. And as it gained in popularity, well, the monks needed more books. If you wanted to study Buddhism and you were in Tibet at that time, you only had a few texts. So you had to go get them from your local library. But your local library in this case was across the Himalaya, the largest and most imposing mountain range in the world. To get from Lhasa to uh, the centers of scholarly learning in places like Sarnath in India, you had to cross the mountains. You had to go through tiger-infested jungles. There were bandits on the roads. It was a seven-year round-trip journey. And when you were in India, you know, you showed up at this monastery and they don't know who you are. They don't really care who you are. You're just some country bumpkin coming from some faraway barbaric land. And yet you had to supplicate to these Indian monks. You had to learn their language. And Sanskrit is a notoriously difficult language to learn. It could take seven years to get fluent. And you also had to learn Pali, where some of those original texts were uh, translated from. And then you were going to translate them into your own language, which is Tibetan. And then you're going to walk that book back to Tibet. But the upside here was after your seven-year, 10-year, 
15-year expedition to get some new books for the Tibetan Library, when you came back, well, there was an appetite for these texts. People wanted more Buddhism. They had learned their sutras and they wanted more texts. And then when you returned home, you were the equivalent of a New York Times best-selling author, an international best-selling author. You were, I mean, hell, you were Stephen King. Uh, they would build monasteries to you. You would go on lecture tours. Uh, you would help spread Buddhism everywhere, and you would gain power to sway the opinions of kings. So monks went back and forth to India from Tibet over and over again for, you know, five, six hundred years, bringing these texts back, finding more, getting famous when they got home. In 1030, an Indian monk named Atisha, who is often credited as the founder of Mahayana Buddhism, which is really what um, Tibetan Buddhism is of the three major branches. Tibetan Buddhism is Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, he uh, first goes to Sumatra and then hikes over into Tibet and drops off, you know, the mother load of texts. And that in 1030, that's really when the version of Tibetan Buddhism that we know um, gets famous, gets impressive. And, you know, Atisha, and there were other monks who were doing this as well. But here's what happens when you're trying to make, you know, the next best-selling book. You had your intro books, you had your sutras, you, your, and the sutras taught that, you know, you have to quiet your mind, you have to look inside, you have to um, slowly get rid of your karma, and that becoming enlightened would take thousands and thousands of lifetimes. Well, Atisha... His version of Buddhism was faster. It was more magical. It, it, it said that instead of um, the slow way, the sutra way, you could go the tantra way. You could explore your most violent emotions, your most sexually charged ideas. You could learn the fast and dangerous way to enlightenment. And he and other monks came back with increasingly magical texts because, well, the Buddhists in Tibet had run out of sutras and, and that you want the next thing, you want the next hit. And this more flashy text, well, it got more famous, just like that would happen here in America. You know, you find your influencer who at first says, hey, you cut carbs out of your body and, you know, you'll get more fit. Well, once they've played that message enough, they might want to run some other idea, like, you know, you need coffee enemas. You need, you need something even more flashy, something more extreme. And that's what Atisha brought back to Tibet in 1030. And the process kept on going. Monks would go from Tibet, come back to India, where they've run out of of your sutra texts and even a lot of your tantra texts, and they start bringing in increasingly sort of bizarre uh, teachings, and they bring it back and they find spiritual roots, uh, spiritual lessons, and even the most extreme uh, thought. Tibetan Buddhism becomes the most weird version of Buddhism out there. Then we get to 1333, roughly. A monk, a portly monk named Dolpopa, uh, starts to get popular and founds a form of Buddhism which we can call mind-only Buddhism. This is a version of, the, of Buddhist thought that 
the mind creates reality, that there is an ultimate reality out there, the enlightened reality, the reality that enlightened people can access that you cannot, and that is the real reality. You live in a land of illusion. Dolpopa gets wildly popular. This idea of um, cultivating your own powers is, well, it's very attractive to people. The idea is that if you study really, really hard, if you are able to communicate with this ultimate enlightened reality, that you become essentially infallible. You are the enlightened being, glowing in gold. You have become a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is essentially a Tibetan Buddhist angel. It could have a thousand arms and create miracles almost at will because sort of like Neo in the Matrix, once you understand the rules to reality, you control reality with your mind. Six years before Dolpopa dies, a child is born named Jay Tsongkhampa. Jay Tsongkhampa is, well, he's recognized from almost birth that this kid is special. The philosophy that he teaches ends up founding the line of Buddhist thought called the Galukpa sect, which is the sect that the Dalai Lama uh, is, adheres to. And what his take on spirituality is, is that forget this mind-only stuff. Even if that enlightenment thing is out there, the more important thing to remember are your vows and the institutions that Buddhism built. There's no enlightenment, there's only constant striving. He reforms Dolpopa's teaching to actually build up institutions. He builds monasteries. He becomes the founder of institutional Buddhism. Think of him as Peter in the, the Saint Peter in the Christian faith. The Galuks suppress Dolpopa's writings. Galukpa's sack monasteries that teach it. They kill all of the monks who taught this mind-only Buddhism stuff. But there's this tension between Dolpopa and Tsongkhampa that exists in Tibetan Buddhism, even till now. It is actually, in my opinion, the fundamental debate in Tibetan Buddhism. Do you build institutions? Do you try to create ethical understandings? Or can you go inside and just through the own, your own force of will understand the true nature of reality? Can you become infallible? Well, that debate's, you know, it's still, honestly, it's still going on. In 1500 AD, mind-only Buddhism springs up again in the country of Bhutan, the country of Druk which means dragon, but it's, it's the word, Tibetan word for Bhutan. And a guy named Drukpa Kunle emerges. Now, if you Google Drukpa Kunle right now, you're going to come up with some pretty crazy stories. He's the founder of something that's called crazy wisdom in English. Uh, he delves deep into his magical understandings of the world. He was said to be able to perform some crazy miracles. One story is that he climbed up to the roof of the Patala. I don't know why he was in the Patala, that's in Lhasa, but he was on the Patala and he pees off the roof of the Patala and then before the urine hits the ground, he sucks that pee back up into his penis to prove that he has 
the true power over matter. He's Neo in the Matrix. Well, or of course, that's the story that he spread in Tibet. There's no video footage of this actually happening. But Drukpa Kunle is, well, he becomes, quote, the saint of 5,000 women. He convinces everyone that he is enlightened, that he knows the true nature of reality. And when, well, if you don't know the true nature of reality, you sort of have to trust this guy. So he sleeps with every woman he meets. He sleeps with nuns. He sleeps with kings, kings' daughters. If you look, if you have Googled his name, Drukpa Kunle, and you, add, and you maybe you add the word Drukpa Kunle symbol, you will notice that throughout the modern country of Tibet, they paint on their walls an erect phallus ejaculating spooge onto all of their walls. It is the symbol of Drukpa Kunle. And this is crazy because I actually snuck into Bhutan, um, you know, several years ago and I, you know, crossed the border from India into Bhutan and I saw these symbols on the wall, giant penises everywhere. Still, Drukpa Kunle is a big deal because he was enlightened and you're not. And therefore, he should sleep with you. It's sort of a story that's been going on a long time. So we have this tension in Tibet, the madness of crazy wisdom and fast uh, trajectories towards enlightenment versus the more slow and measured approach of Jay Tsongkhapa and the Galuks. Should we build institutions or should we go mad and feel and, and follow our emotions both? eventually maybe get you to enlightenment. Okay, so that's this medieval thing that's going on in Tibet. We've got monks going back and forth from India to Tibet, getting increasingly magical ideas about what Tibetan Buddhism should become. Meanwhile, in Europe, something strange is going on. You know, we've just emerged from the Dark Ages. 1400 to roughly 1700 is a time that we call the Renaissance, where scholars who go to Constantinople and Cairo rediscover the lost texts of ancient scholars. We rediscover the medical teachings of Galen. Uh, we rediscover these old philosophies of Aristotle and Socrates. They're, they're, they've been translated into Arabic and, 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 and the, these old books are there and we bring them back to Europe and this flourishing of knowledge creates a new perspective on reality. We have recovered from the dark ages by reaching into history and lightening up the world. Around this time, 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue. We discover new continents as we're trying to establish trade routes um, to the Orient, to Asia. One of these explorers, a guy named Amerigo Vespucci, who eventually gave the name to North and South America, it's that guy. He releases a map of the world. It's not a very good map, but... And this is very, very important. He puts a cross on the Tibetan plateau. Now, Europeans hadn't really explored the Tibetan plateau, but he was certain that Tibet was the lost home of Prester John. Uh, Prester John was one of the three magi who attended Jesus' birth and predicted that he um, would be Jesus. 
And then John, he sort of disappears. He disappears from the record. And everyone assumes that this guy who's a Christian, I don't know how he became a Christian, but he became a Christian and he established a kingdom in the East. And Amerigo Vespucci said it was in the Himalayas. Fast forward, not very long from there, we have the 1700s. And this is the age of enlightenment. Now that we have discovered these lost texts, Greek and Latin texts, we've brought them back to our scholars' homes and our universities, and now there's this flourishing of scientific knowledge. We, you know, Copernicus uh, understands how the the planets really orbit uh, the sun and not the earth. Uh, we have I, the idea of reasoning is coming, and and the Enlightenment only happens because we've gone through the Renaissance. 1822, we translate the Rosetta Stone. Now, the Rosetta Stone is interesting, and we're not going to go too in-depth to it now, but it has three different languages written on it. We have ancient hieroglyphics, demotic scripts, and ancient Greek. We're able to decipher this, and it leads to, well, a, a new way to examine our history. And in a way, examining this Rosetta Stone is a cornerstone of, of the Enlightenment work to use the tools of science to uncover hidden histories in uh, language, in, in inscriptions, to try to understand something which is not directly given to us in a text. And there's this field called philology, which is the study of languages, where we look at the roots of languages and we say, hey, look, French and Spanish, well, they probably share a, a common root, which is, of course, Latin. English, hey, that's sort of a Germanic language. Well, the study of philology takes that all the way back to Proto-Indo-Europeans to, to find the, the, the full root of the most earliest language, which is they consider to be a universal language that humanity must have at one point grunted to each other. The idea with philology is that you can look for the, the clues to these ancient proto-languages in the modern languages and sort of walk it backwards. This, it's like looking for the enlightenment through the science of linguistics. Of course, at this time, we're also sending explorers and colonial agents around the world. Europeans are colonizing absolutely everything. They are extracting resources from anything they can extract resources from. And of course, Europeans have made it to India. There are big colonies there that are generating massive amounts of wealth for the Dutch East India Company. Before this, though, you know, in the Renaissance times, there was this idea that as you looked east, things would get increasingly magical and weird. You knew that in your medieval monk house or your, your village uh, that, well, there's no magic directly in front of you, right? But maybe if you went just a little afield into the forest, there would be a witch or something. And when you eradicated all the witches and you didn't find magic, well, maybe it's going to be the next mountain pass over. And, and it's got to be somewhere over there. And in general, we looked east for that. And as Europeans made it east, as they made it to these um, more mystical areas, well, they started to discover texts. 
The first great translators of that era, well, that was probably a guy named Max Mueller, who was a German uh, professor who studied Sanskrit in Paris and took upon the task of translating the Rig Veda and the Upanishads, two very, very early rediscovered texts, well, at least from the European perspective. And he began translating them. And then these texts, well, just like in ancient Tibet, they got pretty popular in Europe of that time period. Similar to Atisha and those medieval monks, Muller, well, he had a quite a lecture career. He got pretty darn famous as he was able to go do the rounds at all the universities and tell people what this ancient Indic knowledge was really all about. He helps define the idea of an Indo-Aryan language family, the idea that both German and Sanskrit have a common root. And that common root was something, a language called Proto-Indo-European. Based on what he found in the Rig Veda, he assumed that the, the original people who translated these languages were as a group called the Aryans. They were light-skinned, they rode horses, and they forged iron, and they conquered absolutely everyone a long, 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 long time ago. You might recognize that word, Aryan. It comes up in Europe a little bit later with a guy named Adolf Hitler. The philosophy is quite popular. I assume you know that history. So as these Indic texts are circulating in Europe and then North America, well, something else is happening. In the United States, 1860 to 1864, we have a massive war that almost splits our nation in true. It is, it is the deadliest thing America has ever experienced. North and South, brother against brother, the country is in shambles, the president is assassinated. This chaos leads many people to question the benevolence of a Christian creator. And many people start exploring other ideas. They start looking for other spiritual traditions that might explain the horror of the Civil War a little better than a Christian God. This is part of the third great awakening, a time when spirituality comes back into vogue and people start to experiment. In 1875, a woman named Madame Helena Blavatsky, a Russian who escaped the Cossacks and a forced marriage to a much older man, decided that she was going to make her way across the world however she could. She became the prototypical fortune teller. You know, she wears a turban and has these luminescent eyes. She looks over a crystal ball and can tell you her future. And she founds the Theosophical Society in 1875. This is a major moment in world spirituality. Blavatsky and later a guy named Henry Olcott, who was an American uh, Civil War colonel, and then later Annie Besant, 
believe that at one point, just like there was this Proto-Indo-European language, there must have once been a universal human religion that has decayed into the diversity of religions that exist right now. And just like with philology, you can look at the existing faiths and the existing texts to scientifically understand the true spirituality of humankind. There is a true spiritual moment and she can find it. They start funding people to translate texts around the world. Max Muller starts giving lectures at Theosophical Societies. He gives a famous one in 1888. Theosophists translate the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, and, and many people, this is the first time that they're able to read these texts in European languages, in English and German and Italian and Spanish and French. But there's something you gotta know about the Theosophical Society is that they, well, just like those medieval print capitalists, they wanted increasingly engaging and outlandish and supernatural type of things. We have a fortune teller who's now in charge of translating all of the texts that make it to America. She wakes up at night and looks at the foot of her bed into a wicker basket where there are letters written from these people called the Mahatmas. And the Mahatmas are monks who live in the Himalayas who somehow, I guess through mail, I don't, I don't know how these letters get there, and they give her spiritual insights that become uh, a, a part of her very, very famous book called The Secret Doctrine, the underlying universal spiritual truths that, that we can only understand through her as a conduit. Madame Helena Blavatsky and her descendants are the founders, the true founders of something that is called the Law of Attraction. It is an extension of what Dolpulpa was doing with mind-only Buddhism. It was the idea that they understood something truly powerful. And that if you just really believed something, you could influence the world with your thoughts alone. And you know what, there's something really interesting about the law of attraction, if you think about it. You know, the American dream, the idea that if you work hard, uh, you can achieve whatever you want. There, you know, there was a guy later called Max Weber who wrote this book called The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, which is, was the idea that you, your favor from God would manifest in your wealth. Uh, and if you were wealthy, you were probably a pretty good guy, and your hard works would get you there. Well, this, well, this Christian idea mixed very, very well with Blavatsky's Law of Attraction. You prayed real hard, and the Hindu pantheon would grant you your requests. The ultimate reality described by Dolpopa would allow your mind to form the world to your thoughts. But there's this also this thing, right? You know, Europeans have been looking all over the world. They've been exploring every single corner, but there's one place that Europeans have not yet made it to. We've looked east, we've looked at the Himalayas, but we haven't actually gotten there. There is a strange quirk in geopolitics at that time. The British, of course, controlled India, and China was a growing power. And Tibet was, well, it was sort of viewed as a neutral territory, maybe a buffer state between uh, European 
expansion and whatever China might end up being this very populous and potentially powerful state. So Tibet, well, it was hard to get to. And it was the last place that Europeans really ever went. In 1903, though, that all changed when Colonel Young Husband took several brigades up through into the Tibetan plateau and massacred the Tibetan armies. Uh, the Tibetans supposedly showed up. They were wearing uh, magical amulets to protect themselves from European weaponry, and the European weaponry destroyed the Tibetan army in one pitched, horrendous, bloody, evil battle. As I write in my book, The Enlightenment Trap, I quote from a letter from one lieutenant in charge of a battery of Maxim guns. These are machine guns, the earliest version. He wrote, I got so sick of the slaughter that I ceased to fire, though the general's order was to make as big a bag as possible. I hope I shall never again have to shoot down men walking away. Also present at the battle was a correspondent from the Daily Mail. He was one of the few British people who were actually wounded in the battle. He wrote, the impossible had happened. Prayers, charms, and mantras, and the holiest of their holy men had failed them. They walked with bowed heads, as if they had been disillusioned in their gods. By July of that year, the British entered Lhasa and forced Tibet to pay a huge indemnity and accept a British trade mission in exchange for some level of autonomy. See, the British wanted a buffer state, and they actually made it really difficult for people to visit Tibet at that time. The British, the part of their treaty was that the Tibetans would still be independent and China would have, you know, have to cross several thousand miles if they wanted to get into India. So Tibet still had this sort of magical air to it. Maybe if there was going to be a levitating yogi somewhere, we know we didn't find him in India, even though we knew they would be there somehow, but maybe they're still somewhere in a cave in the Himalayas, somewhere. But it was still hard to get a visa for military reasons until, well, 19... 37, a guy named Theos Bernard, who was a, well, a yogi, you could call him. He was actually the son of this guy named Om the Omnipotent, who, you know, several decades before said that he was a yogi master, and he, you know, decided to have sex with all of his students and teach people the true secrets of Tantra, which had to do with his engorged phallus. You know, we can just call it typical guru stuff. Theos, his son, made it to Tibet. I don't even know how he scored this um, uh, entree, but he made it there and he brought cameras with him. And when he came back from Tibet in 1937, he went on the lecture tour of lecture tours. He got way famous, he got a professorship at Columbia. Uh, and he came back saying that when he met with the Lamas in Tibet, they recognized him as an enlightened soul and they taught him all of their secret teachings. I don't know why they would teach him all of their secret teachings, but he came back with a story that he was basically a god uh, and he would give you his godlike superpowers too. His little video that he, sorry, his movie that he pasted together was screened at all of his events and he was charging thousands and thousands of dollars to um, spread this word. 
Uh, as an aside, there's a great book about Theos Bernard called Theos Bernard, The White Llama, which was uh, written by Paul Hackett. I highly suggest it. There's other books written about Theos Bernard as well, and those pale in comparison. So retrieve that lost text and go read that if you're curious about his super strange history. Well, Theos was uh, actually died in 1947 because he ran out of lecture circuit. He sort of like had said everything he said and his, his fees were going down. So he went back to India to go meet some other mysterious monks. Um, at the time, India was in revolution. It was splitting, and he actually arrived during the partition of India between India and Pakistan uh, and got caught up in the violence and was killed. His body was never found. I write a lot about partition in other books. I did a book called The Vortex. Um, you should go take that uh, a look at that if you're interested in my books, but I digress. World War II had an enormous impact on India. Uh, Winston Churchill starved the... the uh, area called Bengal, where, uh, you know, he t basically manufactured a famine. People did not like the British. He used the food that he gathered from that um, to uh, feed the British troops and uh, the people of Britain at the expense of India. Partition was terrible. Over, well over a million people died in the course of a few months. Another thing that's important to know about the year 1937, though, the year that uh, Theos Bernard came back from India, was also the year that a guy named Napoleon Hill published a book called Think and Grow Rich. This was the book that, well, I mean, it's still a bestseller now. It has sold something like 100 million copies. And the plot of that book was Napoleon Hill, an erstwhile journalist, would go interview all of the most important uh, uh, you know, rich guys, the billionaires of that age. I was, you know, they're millionaires, but that doesn't sound so impressive anymore. The billionaires of that age and try to figure out what their secret was. Well, their secret was thinking about becoming rich and manifesting that rich reality. It was the American dream writ large into American spirituality and economics. But the story marches on. When we get to 1952, Heinrich Herrer comes back from Tibet himself. He was a prisoner of war German who somehow escaped the British POW camp, went to Tibet, made friends with the Dalai Lama, had learned Tibetan, actually a really country bumpkin version of Tibetan that the Tibetans all made fun of him for. But he came back and he told again the story of the Dalai Lama, how he was a reincarnation of some Tibetan saints. And then, you know, everyone was mad for the story of Tibet because there was so much magic that happened there. His book isn't actually all that magical, but it does it got famous because anything that was coming out of Tibet was an instant bestseller, just like in ancient print capital times when Tibetans were getting Indian texts. The other reason that his book was so famous was because China had invaded Tibet and it was committing a genocide and Tibetan forces were trying to resist but not doing a very good job at stopping Mao's Red Army. In 1959, the Dalai Lama flees to India and the world is suddenly, well, they have access to a real Tibetan at this point. It is 
you know, he becomes this poster child for the horrors that China commits against its own indigenous population. We become exceptionally fascinated by them, of course, also because of the politics of the Cold War. China is communist, and these innocent Tibetans are being massacred by Mao's evil forces. The Dalai Lama gets a lot of press. His spirituality gets a huge bump. He becomes a best-selling author basically everywhere. And he did it just in time for the flourishing of American spirituality and the fourth great awakening of the 1960s and 70s. This is when the Beatles make it to India, learn sitar at the feet of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and Ravi Shankar, and adopt meditative techniques that they bring back and popularize in America. As an interesting aside here, my uncle Keith Wallace traveled with the Beatles at that time, studied with the Maharishi, and founded the Maharishi International University, which is the backbone of transcendental meditation in America. There is a lot to tell you about Keith Wallace, including his early experiments with ecstasy and psychotherapy, and how he ended up on the cover of Time magazine for proving a connection to health benefits from meditation. Fascinating guy. We'll talk about him in an upcoming episode. But the important thing to remember is that once again, Eastern spirituality was hot. The 60s and the 70s, man, everyone had a meditation routine. Everyone was looking for a something to contrast the fallen state of the West's spiritual materialism, and they found it in the East. In 1977 is another watershed year. This is the year of the Force. Star Wars comes out. George Lucas emerges onto the scene with this sci-fi thriller that everyone loves. Here we find Obi-Wan Kenobi, the purveyor of the Force, who has this mystical power where he can bend reality at his will, and George Lucas says that he is inspired by Tibetan Buddhism. When Empire Strikes Back comes out, just a few years later, Yoda is inspired by the Dalai Lama. Return of the Jedi comes out in 1983. And what do the Ewoks speak? They speak high-speed Tibetan. That's right. If you slow down the, uh, the chattering of the Ewoks and you play it to a Tibetan guy, he'd be like, yeah, I, I understand what they're saying. Because George Lucas is going back to the Himalayan plateau and mixing it with the idea of the Force. And hey, we all love the Jedi. We all love the superpowers. I mean, isn't it sort of weird and sort of funny that people with swords, with lightsabers, right, technological swords, are beating people with guns? Well, that's just a repeat of young husband's attack against the Tibetans with his Maxim guns. But this time in George Lucas's fantasy, the Tibetans win. And Hollywood loves this trope. In 1986, Eddie Murphy rescues a Tibetan monk. Well, I think he's a Nepali monk from Kathmandu who is the golden child. He protects them from the forces of evil. 
1986, there's the Tibetan Freedom Concert, where again, the Cold War is looming over it because this evil empire of China is killing, well, they're killing Ewoks. Let's just be honest. The Chinese are killing Ewoks and you know, smashing pumpkins and Pearl Jam. They all play in front of a packed stadium uh, to the righteousness of uh, Tibetan freedom. Everyone loves Tibet at this point. I was flying a Tibetan flag in my college dorm room. And then a few years later, The Matrix. The Matrix, also a uh, Eastern spirituality meets Hollywood. Uh, Neo discovers that the world that we live in is a simulation and that by taking the right pill, he can understand the true nature of the universe, of this illusory world that we have been talking about since at least 1333 when Dolpopa founded mind-only Buddhism. Neo in the Matrix is Dolpopa. He is Drukpa Kunle and we worship at their feet. And actually, incidentally, just a few years later, uh, Keanu Reeves also stars in a movie where he actually plays the Buddha. Uh, it's called Little Buddha. Go check that at Madness out as well. Then, just a few years later, the international bestseller, the book that everyone buys and reads, there's a movie made up about it. It's called The Secret. That's right, it's Napoleon Hill's book re-updated to the modern world and everyone gets a vision board and we get the idea that we can manifest our dreams, we can manifest wealth by thinking about it just in the right way. We hang up a board and, and, and you know, interesting, Tibetan Buddhism has boards too where they're called um, tankas, uh, with these esoteric paintings that you learn to read and manifest your will in the world. Now we're doing it again with vision boards and the secret is a huge deal. The secret comes out the same year that my student, Emily O'Connor, jumps off the roof of the retreat center in Bodh Gaya after she writes in her journal, I am a bodhisattva. I am essentially an angel. I am enlightened. She believes that not only because of what happened in that meditation chamber, but because of this 2,800-year story that we have been telling, the movement of, of spiritual thought from the time that the Buddha put his finger in the soil in Bodh Gaya to now, where the print capital, the bestsellerness of the Tibetan plateau and the desire to get fame and recognition for spiritual pursuits, that all plays into how we act and how we think about Tibetan Buddhism, about spirituality, about New Age Buddhism, about yoga, about meditation. All of that history is happening right now when we look at the questions of enlightenment. When you go to a meditation center, when you uh, learn yoga and you put your hands together and you say, Namaste, the divine light in me hails and recognizes the divine light in you. Well, if you've ever come across the word Namaste, that's probably the context you hear it. But in reality, Namaste means more like ciao. It's hello and goodbye in India. Now, hello 
the word in English, hello, might also mean the divine light in me hails and recognizes the divine light in you. But that's not really how it's used in India. Instead, this idea of yoga and these sort of like superheated ideas we have about yoga, uh, it actually traces back to Theos Bernard who brought Hatha Yoga to America uh, and Om the Omnipotent, the guy with the magic penis. I am not saying that spirituality is wrong or bad or, or good, honestly. I'm just saying that history has happened and these ideas get recycled and changed and ideas move from one location, they get reabsorbed by a second location and that idea goes back to the first location and changes things again. This is, the, this is what culture does. This is the, the nature of culture. But it's important to remember that there's not one unchanging, perfect Buddhism, perfect Hinduism, perfect Christianity, perfect any religion, is that history plays a role in everything that we're doing right now. And when Emily O'Connor took her own life because she believed that she was enlightened, it was in part because of everything that had happened before it. This is the background. This is the context to my book, The Enlightenment Trap. This is, I mean, it's honestly one of the most important stories that I've ever told because so many of us look to Eastern thought and spirituality and we, we look at it as an alternative to the thoughts and the, the sort of the corrupt spirituality that we have in our own world. We all recognize there's problems with Christianity, right? You know, we know about priests, um, you know, fondling and molesting little boys and, and the problems with the Crusades and all of that history, but we don't generally look at Eastern traditions in the same way. We look at them and we say there's something pure about them, or at least they're an alternative. But this is at least part of that history, and I want you to know it. And I want everyone to know it. And it's not to say that any of these things are bad. I actually know many Tibetan Buddhists. I know many Hindus. I, I, I think that there's really amazing spiritual insights. And some of those conversations between Dolpopa and Jay Tsongkhampa are important. Essentially, they were arguing, is it better to create a society where people get along and have institutions and have structure, or is it better to follow the wildness of your own internal emotions? That's something that, you know, it's, it's a serious conversation. I mean, we're having it all the time in America in different ways. It was happening in the 1500s in Tibet. It's happening now. And it's happening in our own spiritual beliefs. So this is the background of the Enlightenment Trap. Thank you so much for listening to it. I am, the next time we talk, well, maybe not the next time, but a future time that we talk, I'm going to tell you about a spate of deaths and madness in meditative communities, how people take these ideas, take this history that they do not really even know, and move it into their meditative practices in ways that have terrible outcomes. And I think that there's a lesson in that that we can all understand. It's the story of Ian Thorson and his spiritual wife and goddess Lama Christy McNally, as well as Geshe Michael Roach, who is the modern Theos Bernard, who went to India and came back enlightened and is going to teach you the well, I mean, he talks about Jay Tsongkhampa a lot. He talks about cultivating superpowers from ancient Indian texts. 
And that's really the main subject of the Enlightenment trap. But it's a generalized idea that, well, now you know about it. Thank you for listening to Scott Carney Investigates. I hit my hour mark. At the beginning of this, I didn't know if this was going to be an hour or two hours or three hours, but it is my favorite story to tell, so maybe I've gotten a little more concise at telling it. Scott Carney Investigates in Denver, Colorado. Please, please tell a friend about this podcast. If you think that there's something of use here, you don't need to post it on social media. I, mean, I like tweets and likes and YouTube skeets, whatever's going on now. I like all that stuff. But it's more and more important to say, hey, I've had this cool thought and have a conversation about it with a friend because I'm certain you're going to tell them something that they had never heard before. From Pokey Bear LLC, this is Scott Carney Investigates. Mm-hmm.